Now, as I said, the empirical data is kind of mixed. It seems to suggest that in some contexts, contraception access helps reduce abortions. In other contexts, it makes the problem worse. For both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where medical professionals answer your questions about what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We know that every day in your practice and on your rotations, you face clinical situations that are challenging. We've all called a curbside consult when we need a quick second opinion on the best course of action for a patient. This podcast series is meant to serve as a curbside consult for you as you face ethically challenging patient care scenarios. Hear from experts on how they approach these situations and tips for how to think through them. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. So this is part two of a conversation with Dr. Callum Miller about the effects of various public policy efforts on abortion rates. We've already covered the impacts of abortion regulations and welfare on the rates of induced abortion. So now let's move on to two interrelated topics, sex education and contraception. So Dr. Miller, a common narrative about sex education is that those who wish to see a decline in abortion rates should stop promoting so-called abstinence-only education. The argument goes that it's unrealistic to expect young people to delay sexual activity. And if that's all we encourage, they won't know how to engage in sexual activity while avoiding pregnancy, which will increase the rates of unplanned pregnancy and in turn induced abortion. So first, what are your thoughts on the comparative merits of what's dubbed comprehensive sex education versus sexual risk avoidance education? Yeah, so uh, thank you for having me back. And I think the the answer to this is you know, the impact of sex education and as we'll see contraception is again really nuanced. So I said that welfare can have a good impact on the abortion rate. It can have a bad impact on the abortion rate. And that's really the same with sex education as well. So sex education is a very broad phenomenon, a very diverse phenomenon. And what you find is that it has very different meanings in different contexts. So comprehensive sex education kind of sounds like a good thing because being comprehensive always sounds, you know, very good and competent. Um, The reality is it's a sort of technical term describing a particularly radical kind of sex education promoted by, you know, big abortion. (laughs) Basically, you know who that is. WHO, UN, uh, all the agencies at the UN, a load of governments, Planned Parenthood, etc., And when you look at the content, it's pretty, I mean, it's basically pedophilic kind of content. And I don't say that to kind of scaremonger or be alarmist, but that literally is the kind of content that we see. And we're beginning to see now around the world that there's greater awareness of this. So for many years, you know, the average person in my country, the UK, was very trusting of the UN, very trusting of the WHO, very trusting of you know, the, I guess, progressive sexual kind of movement (laughs) that said, you know, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, etc. What we've seen recently is that there's been a big backlash among pretty secular left-leaning people in the UK 
at the kind of sex education which is being promoted by these organizations, which is called comprehensive sexuality education. And the reasons for that, I, I won't go into detail. There are some much better organizations that can share the detail. Um, but just to give you a couple of examples, this is the sexuality standards or sexual education standards for Europe, published by the World Health Organization. And in this document, they basically say this is what European children should be taught about sex at different ages. And it divides it into the information they should be given and then the skills they should be taught as well. So it says, and it does it for every age group. So it says that from age zero to four, basically as soon as they're born <laughs> to age four, it says they should be given information about enjoyment and pleasure when touching one's own body, early childhood masturbation, and so on. It says that they should be given the skills to gain an awareness of gender identity and so on. Now, I know gender identity is a you know a big thing in the US where everyone's very divided. Um, in the UK, we're sort of over that now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a pretty widespread consensus. Not everyone, but most people in the UK realize that three-year-olds should not be being taught about this concept of gender identity. It's, it's a very strange thing. Um, like I say, in the US, I know it's a bit more controversial still. Um, all that to say, this is, you know, fairly strange stuff to be teaching to, to zero to four-year-olds at best. When you get to nine to 12-year-olds, it says they should be given information about their first sexual experience, about the sexual behavior of young people, about pleasure, masturbation, and orgasm. This is, you know, nine to 10-year-olds. And the skills not just the information, but the skills should be given to make a conscious decision to have sexual experiences or not. Now, it's not talking about how to say no to sexual experiences because the next bullet point is refuse unwanted sexual experiences. What they're clearly saying is that nine to 12 year olds should be given the skills to make a conscious decision to have sexual experiences or not. It's an option. They're allowed to choose. Now, if you're me, or if you're any sane person, <laughs> you think this is crazy to teach to nine to 12 year olds. They should not be given the skills to say yes to sex. But this is what the WHO is teaching. So those are just a couple of examples, but all that to show this is really what CSE is about. Um, and clearly that's not going to have a very positive impact on risk avoidance on the abortion rate. It's going to teach 10-year-olds to have sex. They'll get pregnant. They're obviously not going to use contraception effectively, and therefore they'll probably end up seeking an abortion, either at their request or more likely at their parents' request. Um, on the other hand, you get some sex education, which can be good. It can teach kids about self-esteem. It can teach kids how to say no. It can teach kids about responsibility. It can teach kids about the proper role of sex and parenthood in a relationship. It can teach kids about the very profound consequences of sex. And it can do all of this in an age-appropriate way. And it can teach kids how to say no and how to respect themselves rather than having sex because someone else wants them to. And we have good evidence, uh, which I'll come to in a moment, that this is actually pretty effective, or at least it can be. Um, now, what's most remarkable, the last thing I'll say, is that they have sort of even changed, <laughs> they've even manipulated the language around this. So most listeners will know that abstinence education is kind of like a, um, <laughs> it's kind of a, a bad word. It's sort of supposed to be something that doesn't work. It's what 
you know, the religious right from the 1970s talks about. It's this oppressive old school thing which doesn't make any difference. Um, the other side has now redefined abstinence education so that it now means education about having sex when you want to. <laughs> so it's kind of the opposite of abstinence. Um, but this is what's going on. So all that to say, you have to be a little bit careful when you hear someone saying, let's promote abstinence education. That used to be a good thing. But nowadays, the language and terminology have twisted so much that there's really no way to look at what the content or, or to assess how good sex education is without looking directly at the teaching materials and the exact content. We can't just say, let's do abstinence education anymore, sadly. And so all that to say, what's really important for parents in particular and doctors and anyone, anyone in civil society who has a role in the community, which is everyone, um, they really have to hold schools and other bodies to account and say, what is actually being taught to our kids? Let's see the materials and let's, let's make sure that parents have a legal right to see those materials because only then can you really see what is this sex ed education actually about. Absolutely. And it's certainly important to understand the differences between the various philosophies behind sex education. Um, now, what impacts do each of those approaches have on abortion rates? Yeah, so here I can be a lot quicker, I think, <laughs> um, which is, as you might guess, the, the good kind of sex education probably does reduce the abortion rates. We don't actually have much evidence on this. So we really do need more good quality evidence, ideally randomized trials, showing the effect of good quality sex education on abortion rates and trying to fine tune that and make it even better. We need really top quality evidence-based and proven results sex education so if anyone feels minded to do that who's listening uh, please get in touch we'd love to help set up that kind of research and see what really works the best but we know that there have been a couple of randomized trials where this education has been shown to make a huge difference one of them had a 80 percent reduction in teen pregnancies in a randomized trial so it's pretty compelling evidence um, by contrast comprehensive sex education the short answer is it basically doesn't work um, there's almost no research showing that it works. And as you can imagine, why would it work? It's teaching 11-year-old, 10, 9-year-old kids to have sex. That's never going to reduce unwanted pregnancies. It's never going to reduce the abortion rate. Um, there are a couple of Cochrane database reviews on this. Um, so for anyone interested in that, they can look at my website. But it's it's helpful to know that even when you look at the Cochrane databases and the randomized trials on comprehensive sexuality education, they basically find that there's no evidence that this works in, in reducing the abortion rate. So yeah, there's a lot of very good quality evidence. We need more, but there's, there's pretty good quality evidence showing that CSE doesn't work, but real good sex education and relationships education can work. That's really helpful to know. Yeah. Uh, a slightly different but related question is that of access to contraception. Uh, many people's intuition tells them that if more people are given access to contraceptives, then they'll be more often able to successfully prevent pregnancy, and that would decrease the rates of abortion. So, yeah, what does the literature say about that? Yeah, so this is a huge, huge literature, <laughs> and I, I was a bit nervous about the 
this discussion because it's very hard to summarize, but we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, so the short answer is the same as with pro-life laws, as with welfare, as with sex education, is that it really depends. And the simplest way to see that is there's a, a couple of good studies by John Cleland, um, who's a British researcher who's very involved in the sort of, you know, progressive sexual abortion kind of agenda stuff, all those organizations. But he's published a couple of pretty good papers on the relationship between contraception and abortion. And he's looked at a number of different countries. And what he basically says is that in some countries, when you introduce modern contraception, the abortion rate declines. In other countries, when you introduce modern contraception, the abortion rate increases. And it's pretty complex. And the reason it sort of has a, a twofold effect, depending on the context, is that, of course, in a given instance of sexual intercourse, contraception is going to reduce the risk of pregnancy. You know, if you're going to have sex anyway, and if you don't want a baby and you're determined not to have a baby, um, yeah, you're you're going to, be, going to be less likely to have uh, a pregnancy and you're going to be less likely to have an abortion as a result. The problem is that contraception on a population level has an opposite impact because it basically reduces the risk of pregnancy and therefore incentivizes people to have more sex. They can think, oh, if I get pregnant, I can always have an abortion. So there's less risk to having sex. So they're more likely to have sex with someone that they're not prepared to have a child with. And they're also more averse to having a child because contraception reinforces the sort of cultural idea that sex and pregnancy are unrelated. They shouldn't be connected to each other. Um, so contraception has this sort of twofold impact, partly reducing pregnancies, but also partly increasing pregnancies or increasing risky sexual behavior at the very least, and increasing people's willingness to get an abortion. Because they feel like, you know, if I've taken precautions, then I should, I'm sort of more entitled to have an abortion because I've at least tried to, to avoid pregnancy. So all that to say, we can't answer this question just by theory alone. We have to look at the empirical data. Now, as I said, the empirical data is kind of mixed. It seems to suggest that in some contexts, contraception access helps reduce abortions. In other contexts, it makes the problem worse. And so what you actually find is that generally in the sort of communist countries of Eastern Europe, abortion, sorry, contraception decreased the abortion rate. And the reason for that is quite simple. And as an illustration in I think it was the 1960s, it might have been the 1980s in Romania, the average woman had eight abortions in her lifetime. Eight abortions on average. So abortion was just being used as contraception, as birth control. You would get pregnant quite naturally many times in your life. And if you didn't want a baby because you only wanted one or two children, you would have an abortion. And therefore, many women got pregnant 10 or 11 times. They had nearly that many abortions. And of course, in that situation where you're already, you're already in the sort of birth control mentality, you're already willing to have riskier sex because you can just have an abortion and so on. And there is no modern contraception. When you introduce modern contraception to that sort of society, it will improve things. It will reduce the abortion rate because you're basically replacing abortions with contraception and, you know, it makes a positive impact. But in most other countries that didn't have that sort of 
particular situation, what you find is that when you legalize contraception, it actually liberalizes people's sexual behavior to a huge degree, and therefore it causes many more unwanted pregnancies um, and many more abortions. And so really the, the overall message, I suppose, is that in a conservative culture where people recognize a connection between sex and pregnancy and they adjust their behavior accordingly, contraception is probably going to make things worse because it severs that connection and causes a lot more sex and makes people think they should be able to have sex without having a baby. Um, in a culture where that connection is already severed and people are already having sex with whoever they want whenever they want, but they don't have contraception, in that sort of context, contraception is likely to improve things. Now, that's a bit of a simplistic picture and there's, there's more to it than that. But all that to say, it, the evidence is, is pretty nuanced. Um, of course, contraception often fails. We know that about half of abortions are because of failed contraception. We know that actually contraception in most parts of the world is already near maximum capacity. So the contraception prevalence in the US has been pretty much identical no matter who the president is. It's not the case that under Republican presidents, loads of women can't get contraception. The contraceptive prevalence over the last 20, 30 years has actually been marginally higher under Republican presidents than under Democrat presidents. Um, likewise, in the developing world, we know that the unmet need for contraception is about 13%. What that means is unmet need is, is not a great term for it because it's slightly inaccurate. But this is basically women who are having sex, they don't want a baby, and they're not using contraception. Now, we know that um, th that number of women, that proportion of women, is only about 13%, even in developing countries where access to contraception is not quite as good. So it's a small proportion of women that aren't using contraception, but you might think should be. Now, what's most interesting is that when you look at that small percentage of women, only a tiny percentage of those women are failing to use contraception because they cannot access it. In fact, the main reason they're not using contraception is because they don't like the side effects, they don't like uh, the complications, they maybe are ambivalent about having a baby, they don't want a baby, but they don't mind if they have a baby, um, they might feel that sex is more pleasurable without contraception or whatever. There's a load of reasons that women don't use contraception, even if they don't actively desire a pregnancy. And so when you put those statistics together, what you actually find is that the number of women who are not using contraception because they cannot access it, even in the developing world, in sub-Saharan Africa, that proportion of women is absolutely minuscule. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of women, probably, yeah, significantly less than 1% of women, we think. So all of that to say, um, even if contraception had this, you know, very... Um, impressive effects on the abortion rate, there's actually not much that you can do to change access to it because almost everywhere in the world, it's actually possible to access contraception. Um, the one final thing I'll say on that is, uh, is just because we have very good evidence on this. This is a debate that particularly comes up in America because this is a 
potentially a case where there is a significant move to limit this sort of contraception, the case of emergency contraception. So, you know, in pretty much everywhere in America, you can get ordinary contraception. But admittedly, a lot of people in the pro-life movement are against emergency contraception because um, there's some research which suggests that it could operate after fertilization and therefore it could cause early abortions. Now, again, when you look at the evidence on this, there have been a number of randomized trials on emergency contraception access and the abortion rate and the unintended pregnancy rate. And these res- these trials and even systematic reviews have been done by everyone. And you get people on the other side who are very prominent figures in the pro-abortion lobby um, in the research movement there. And they all agree, pretty much every single review on this topic agrees that there is no evidence that increasing access to emergency contraception reduces unintended pregnancy rates or reduces the abortion rates. They are all, it's not even like controversial. They are all agreed that there is no good evidence that emergency contraception access improves these things. And so that I I think is hopefully just a, a good illustration of how this debate has really just been dominated by instinct it's dominated by this instinct that of course contraception just helps Um, but in fact the reality is that the evidence generally doesn't support that position except in relatively extreme and unusual historical circumstances like uh, communist eastern europe 50 years ago so again the evidence is nuanced we have to look at it seriously but on the whole there's nothing like pro-life laws and protecting women and children directly from abortion, nothing really comes close to those laws in terms of preventing the number of abortions. There's certainly a a lot of factors to consider there at the level of the individual and at the level of the population. So thank you for that. What takeaways do these findings offer to medical professionals for their clinical practice about the uh, contraception and sex education? Yeah, I think this is quite relevant because, of course, clinicians are often directly involved in administering education or contraception. And so it can affect their own practice. So I suppose what I'd say is that clinicians and researchers should be focusing on firstly developing good sex education, developing programs which not only are age appropriate and so on, but also are evidence driven in terms of the outcomes. You know, we should be auditing these programs to make sure that they are having a good impact. And we should do that as critically and rigorously as possible. We shouldn't just think, this is my friend's sex education program, so it must be good. Let's actually look and measure those results. Um, The second thing I think is when educating patients, again, um, it's not a case of assuming that they're going to be sexually active and therefore just teaching them how to do it safely. There's actually a lot that you can share with your patients about the connection between sex and pregnancy, and therefore the importance of waiting until you're ready and with someone that you're potentially prepared to have a child with. And then exactly the same is true of contraception. Um, If someone is a particularly risky individual, if they are, you know, they come from a very difficult background, they're very sexually active, with a number of different people because of, you know, potentially emotional insecurities and so on and, and relational difficulties. In that situation, if they're going to have sex anyway with a load of different people anyway, and they're clearly not ready to have a child and they're, they're not going to have a child if they got pregnant or they're not going to let that child live at least, in that situation, there is a case to be made that 
contraception could help them individually um, avoid an abortion. Um, of course, if if your conscience uh, and your values are against contraception generally, I'm not saying override those, but I'm saying that contraception in theory could work in that situation to at least reduce the abortion rates. That's not the only thing you should take into account, but it's it's perhaps one of them. For someone who is not in that situation, you might think twice. You might say, well, maybe if I give them contraception, they're going to forget that sex leads to pregnancy. They're going to be much more likely to become sexually active. And is contraception going to facilitate that mentality? And is it going to incentivize them to have sex when they're not really ready yet? And is this 15-year-old girl having sex a good idea? Probably not. <laughs> um, so in that sort of situation, contraception might actually make the matter worse on an individual level. And so I suppose the main takeaway in, in the contraception side is when thinking about whether contraception is going to work for my patient, it really matters what that patient is like before you give the contraception and what their sexual behavior is like. And so maybe it's worth finding out a bit more about that before you look to prescribe any treatment or any intervention at all. Um, and I think that's the responsible thing that doctors should always do in general, but it's, I think, particularly reinforced in this case. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. You've certainly had a lot of useful things to say today. Um, for people who want to learn more about your research and what you think about abortion and various topics, uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, so they can find me on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Callum Miller is my handle. So it's D-R-C-A-L-U-M-M-I-L-L-E-R. -L -L -E you can rewind if you didn't hear it. Um, or you can find me on callummiller.org. Um, it's for speaking inquiries and um, a bit more about the work that I do speaking. And then if anyone wants to learn more about pro-life apologetics or statistics or references, if you go to callumsblog.com, callumsblog.com, you can find an abortion Q&A. And it has over 100 questions about abortion and all the answers with loads of references from PubMed articles, from all the best sources. And it really is trying to be a comprehensive, complete overview of pro-life apologetics and scientific data and medical references on this topic. So please make use of that if it's at all useful. Absolutely. And I'll certainly have your, your Twitter handle and the link to those two websites in the description of this episode. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us to share your insights today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope it was useful. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you have any topic requests, you can direct message us on the social media pages linked in the description of this episode. You can also email us at info at aaplog.org. And if you're a medical professional interested in joining this community as a member, you can do so by going to aaplog.org join. We will see you next week.